Today we are in Esther chapter 8. We're in our final two weeks of our series through the Old Testament book of Esther before we turn the corner into our Advent season, which seems strange because it's like 80 degrees out right now. I'm like, what happened? Earlier this week, it was all foggy and cold. I even got my holiday beverage. And then it's like summer. I'm like, right, I'm in California. But we are in the final two weeks of Esther in a series we're calling Faith in Exile. Through this book, we've been asking questions of what is it like to live out a life of faith in a world that seems chaotic and uncertain and disconnected from God. And there are so many lessons from the book of Esther as we see the, the Jewish people in exile in the ancient empire of Persia. And we've noted along the way different characteristics, different attributes of what's really important to pay attention to when you're living life in a disconnected world. And one of the themes we come to today is a very important lesson for me, but one I believe is important for us all, and that is the lesson of joy. You and I can have joy against all the odds, even when it seems like everything is collapsing around you, and that is good news. Esther chapter eight is a chapter that begins with sorrow, but ends with joy. I'm going to pray now. We're going to read the whole chapter as we go along. Let me pray. Let's invite the Holy Spirit to speak to every one of us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you that everyone in this room, those who are watching online, or seated outside, matter to you. And thank you that you are concerned for our joy. And we thank you most of all that you are the source of our joy. And you have made a way for every one of us in spite of how difficult the circumstances we are in might be. Because of what you've done for us in the gospel, we can have joy. And I pray that through this story of what you did thousands of years ago in the book of Esther would remind us what it is that we need to know about joy so that we might be filled with joy. We pray also for anyone here who does not yet know you that today they would come to know you and put their faith and trust in Jesus and be changed forever. Holy Spirit, open our hearts as we open your word now. We ask together in Jesus' name and everyone said, amen. Corey Ten Boom was a Dutch Christian who helped many Jews during World War II. She eventually ended up in a concentration camp as a result. But it was during her time in those camps that she saw terror, torture, and sickness. And yet even in the darkest hour, she reports in her many books she's written, she experienced God as never before. It was as she gave herself to God in the midst of all of those trials and all of those difficulties that she experienced what she would spend the rest of her life teaching. That no matter the circumstance you are in, you can know the joy and the peace of God. One of her book titles is called A Prisoner Yet Free. And when asked why she could have joy in such horrible circumstances, she simply replied, joy runs deeper than despair. And the same is true for every one of us. It's possible. And isn't that what every one of our hearts longs for? A deep joy that is possible even when it seems like all the odds are against you. And you may feel that that is the case today. That all the odds are against your joy. Your relational situations right now, you feel that they're against your joy. The economic situation, the cultural, political, practical situation you're in, it can feel as if, and I know this for myself, that all the odds are against your joy. Well, if that's you this morning, then Esther chapter 8 is for every one of us. It is a chapter in the story of Esther and the plight of the Jewish people in the Persian Empire that does begin with sorrow. 
but it ends with joy. And the good news for you and for me is that as we read these words and connect it to the larger story of the Bible, that joy is possible for every one of us, no matter how the odds are stacked against you. In reading this chapter this week, I just find this great connection between the situation that the men and women find themselves in back then in our world today. There can be trials. There can be tragedy. The Jewish people, as we are reminded of, were in danger of being wiped out in ancient Persia. But the story doesn't end there. What we find is a a great reversal that results in millions of people experiencing joy. And it's important for us to pay attention to the story because this joy does not come about in ways that we often think. We often think that joy is the absence of hardship. That if the hardships and trials in my life disappear, then I will be joyful. If this difficult circumstance would go away, or this argument I'm having with a very dear friend or family member of mine, if it will just be resolved, then I can have joy. Because in our minds we think, if there's difficulty, I cannot have joy. But what we learn here and also elsewhere in the Bible is that real joy is not the absence of hardship. Joy can be found within the hardship. Nor are we asked to close our eyes from all the problems around us. No. Hardship is not absent from the book of Esther, but neither is joy. And so Esther chapter 8 highlights several lessons. I want us to note the need for joy, the obstacles to joy, and the reasons for our joy. Several lessons I want us to take to heart. The first is this, we must acknowledge our need for joy. The Bible never asks us to pretend that trials, hardship, difficulty, suffering aren't real. This is certainly not the case for the story of Esther and the whole book of Esther. By way of reminder, Esther is a Jewish woman who was raised by her older cousin Mordecai in the ancient Persian Empire. The great king, one of the greatest rulers back then, chose her among many to be his queen, although he did not know her Jewish heritage. Neither did a man named Haman. Haman, as we've seen in the story, was the king's right-hand man. He hated the Jewish people. And he even secured permission from the king to kill all the Jewish people in the empire by telling the king that the Jewish people were a threat, which they weren't. But what neither Haman nor the king knew was that Esther was Jewish. And it was upon revealing her Jewish identity to the king and to Haman that caused the king to be outraged for Haman's plan to kill the Jewish people would have included his own queen. And so in the last few chapters, we learn that upon hearing this news, the outraged king Xerxes had this man Haman executed. What's the result? Well, there was temporary relief for Mordecai and for Esther following Haman's death. A reversal of fortune, but only for them personally. Esther chapter 8, verses 1 to 2. That same day, King Xerxes gave Queen Esther the estate of Haman, the enemy of the Jews. And Mordecai came into the presence of the king, for Esther had told How he was related to her. The king took off his signet ring, which he had reclaimed from Haman, and presented it to Mordecai. And Esther appointed him over Haman's estate. This is a radical reversal from the situation that we find Mordecai in earlier on. In the previous chapters, Mordecai was on the verge of death. This prime minister, Haman, under the king, wanted to have him killed. But instead, the, whole, the tables turn, and Haman is destroyed, and Mordecai lives, and he's given the signet ring that belonged to Haman, and he's even given the estate that belonged to Haman. 
Now, if you were only looking at the story with an individualistic lens, if life was only about how well your own personal journey is going, you could end the story here. Hey, they got a house. The end, right? Because that's the ultimate source of joy for every Californian is one day. Even though it's economically impossible somehow, I will own a house in all of its 900 square feet glory for $8 million. I will find that house, one and a half bedroom, half bath, and I will have joy. If we were only looking at this story through the lens of what could benefit you personally, you could just stop the story right there and say, oh, it's a happy ending. Mordecai got his estate, he got a nice ring, it's amazing. But it doesn't, because there is still a massive problem. The estate and the reversal of their situations personally for Esther and Mordecai did not bring them joy. Note that. There's still a problem. Though Haman was dead, and the immediate threat to Mordecai removed, his evil plan was very much alive. The result is that the story is not over. And the relief that came from Haman's downfall was short-lived. Millions of Jews were still under the shadow of death because Haman's government order to kill all the Jews in the empire remained active. And we will find out why in a moment. But I want you to note that we see Esther, even though there's been a personal turnaround for her and Mordecai, she is in a place of sorrow and is still in need of joy. Look at verse three and four. Esther again pleaded with the king, falling at his feet and weeping. She begged him to put an end to the evil plan of Haman the Agagite, which he had devised against the Jews. Then the king extended the gold scepter to Esther, and she arose and stood before him. Personal wealth, security, position, could never bring joy to Esther so long as her people, the people of God, were in danger. For her, the most important thing was their deliverance, not her own comfort. Which is indeed yet another evidence of Esther's personal transformation. Because if you've been with us in the beginning of the story, we find Esther somewhat compromised. She's all but assimilated into Persian culture, even though she is a Jew. And in the beginning of the story, she is seemingly concerned only for her own life, up until chapter 5. But all that began to change when she shows evidence of a reawakened faith as she chooses to identify with the people of God. We still see her in need of joy because there's a bigger and deeper problem than her own personal comfort, security, or wealth. And in so many ways, this is a lesson for me, it's a lesson for us all. When God opens your heart, when God opens your eyes to see the truth and the real needs of the world around you, your friends, your family, your neighbor, you realize that no personal success, no personal pleasure or comfort alone could ever give you joy. Instead, you're, you're grieved by an even greater threat. The whole world is in need. In what way? We've said this before, but the Bible is the most honest book. True about God, true about mankind. And it says that we are all, because of sin, under the shadow of death. In fact, that phrase is used in the New Testament as the arrival of Jesus, the season we're about to celebrate heading into Advent, was anticipated in a moment in the gospel according to Luke, speaking of the promise of Messiah, but also the need of mankind. Luke chapter 1 verse 7, 9 says this, 
The rising sun will come to us from heaven, speaking about this promise of salvation, to shine on those living in darkness and in the shadow of death. Who's living in darkness? Who's living in the shadow of death? The world. Everyone. The Bible speaks to a variety of needs, but the greatest need is spiritual. The greatest need of all is eternal. Because left unresolved, the results of separation from God because of sin last forever. Why do I mention that? It's for this reason. If joy is possible, if real joy is possible, and if the word joy means anything significant, it has to address our deepest need. It can't just be a surface level issue like, I had fun today. Yay. But you can't carry that over into the next day when you face trials and tribulations. Is having fun bad? No. Having fun is a good thing. Yay. It's never going to deal with my deepest need. Is getting that house, one and a half bedroom house, a bad thing? Of course not. It's a good thing. Will it ever meet your deepest need? No. Having a new relationship, restoring some of your friendships, that would be a great thing. But do they deal with your deepest need? No. If joy is possible, deep, real, lasting joy, then it has to address our deepest need. And so acknowledging how deep our need is for joy will actually keep us from looking for joy in all the wrong places. That's why it's a point in the sermon. (laughs) Because so many of us are looking to something else to give us joy. And it's in those moments when we're looking to something else to give us joy, we have forgotten how deep our need is. Our need is to be reconciled to God because the whole world, apart from God's grace, lies under the shadow of death. And so the absence of deep joy is like a signpost. It's like an alarm bell alerting us to our need for God. The need for joy in the world is a wake-up call to our need for God. And so it is essential here in this story that we see that Esther is not content with just having her own personal circumstance turn around. There is a much greater and deeper need. And so it is for us, friends, we must understand, we must see, we must realize, we must recognize that if joy is possible, it has to address our deepest need. And what is our deepest need? We are all, because of sin, living under the shadow of death. If you want to understand what real joy is when the Bible talks about joy, it starts by recognizing our need for joy. And so we see that Esther and Mordecai are now in a better position than ever. And yet, all the odds still seem to be against them, which leads to the second point. We need to recognize our need for joy, but secondly, we need to understand the obstacles to our joy. And I find a striking similarity between the obstacles to joy for Esther, Mordecai, and the Jewish people to our situation, to the obstacles against joy for us today. Notice what's happening in the story. Even though Esther and Mordecai are in a good standing with the king, they have access to the palace, the king tips his scepter towards Esther and Mordecai, which was a symbol of the king's favor, there was still a massive problem. What was decreed, what was put into law regarding the destruction of the Jewish people by Haman could not be changed. And so the king, though certainly favorable towards Esther and Mordecai, there's still a problem. And so Esther pleads in verse 5, If it pleases the king, she said, and if he regards me with favor and thinks that the right thing to do, and if he is pleased with me, notice she kind of says that twice, let an order be written overruling the dispatches that Haman, the son of Hamaditha, the Agagite, devised and wrote to destroy the Jews and all the king's provinces. For how can I bear to see disaster fall on my people? How can I bear to see the destruction of my family? 
King Xerxes replied to Queen Esther and to Mordecai the Jew, because Haman attacked the Jews, I have given his estate to Esther and they have impaled him on the pole he set up. Now, write another decree in the king's name in behalf of the Jews as seems best to you and seal it with the king's signet ring for, here's the point, no document written in the king's name and sealed with his ring can be revoked. There's a few problems to the joy of Esther, Mordecai, and the Jewish people. And the two problems were the past cannot be changed and the law could not be reversed. Remember that. The past could not be changed. What had happened has happened. And the law that was made cannot be reversed. The king brings this up at the end of verse 8. Why? Because when a king passed a decree into law, it was unchangeable. Seems strange to us because in, you know, modern governments, laws can be changed, you know, up by the higher courts in the land. But in ancient empires, in order to add integrity and weight and strength and security for the nation or the empire, the decree of the king could not be overturned. This kept the king or the queen from just being flippant in their laws. After all, if a, a ruler could withdraw their law at any time, it would be absolute chaos. It would also force the king or queen to have a think about what they are going to decree, for it could not be overturned. It would cheapen the law. And so, there's an obstacle. What happened in the past with Haman, even though Haman personally was now no longer a threat, what he did in the past could not be changed. And so we find these two obstacles to joy. Before joy shows up in this chapter, we find that the past cannot be changed and the law cannot be reversed. And in many ways, I highlight that because the same is true for us. Our past cannot be changed. And there is a law that pertains to us that cannot be reversed. Think about that for a moment. I, I suppose that the past is the easiest one to relate to and connect with. If I were to ask all of you this, this morning, if you could change anything about your past, of course, you probably wouldn't have enough paper to write on. I mean, many of us, we find ourselves occupied day in, day out, wishing, hoping that we could change something in the past. Even yesterday, like, oh, I said something stupid. Gosh, I wish I could go back and reverse it. It's one of the reasons I believe that, like, time travel is such a huge deal in books and movies. Let me just geek out for a moment. Like, I'm watching, like, you know, all these movies as my kids are getting older, and so many of the plot lines have to do with time travel. Back to the Future, Marvel movies, and I know some of you who are like movie geeks are like, there's plot holes in the science. Like, yeah, whatever, we can talk later. But why does time travel such a big deal in so many films? Because it touches on this deep need that all of us wish we had that we could go back and change the past. Oh, I wish this didn't happen. I wish I could go back in time. I wish I could change that or reverse that, but we can't. The result is that many of us are burdened by the past, the things that we've done, the things that have been done to us. It's like this invisible burden that many of us carry year after year, and it can weigh so heavy upon us, and it is indeed an obstacle to our joy. It's an obstacle. It's a weight that we carry. We wish we could change the past, but we cannot. The choices we've made, the choices made by others, our own sins, our own failures, our own shortcomings, or the sins, failures, and shortcomings of other people. I think often, to this day, of all the things that I regret in the past, both before becoming a Christian as well as becoming a Christian. So much so that for some of us, it's hard to talk about. My oldest daughter, no joke, one time asked me, Dad, what's the worst thing you've ever done? And I was like, whoa, like, I'm not ready to talk about that right now. <laughs> like, that's a big question. That was my answer to her on that day. 
How would you answer that question? What is it in your past that just hangs over like a burden? It can be an obstacle to joy. But there's also, as it was with Esther and Mordecai, another obstacle to joy. Not only could the past not be changed, it's a problem, but the law, there is a law that cannot be reversed. The same is true for us. Ever since mankind rebelled against God, the law of sin and death has been at work in the world. God is the source and author of life. When we've sinned, when our first parents sinned, we turned away from God, we were separated from God. And because God is righteous, he is holy, he is just, there is a, a law, there is a standard by which we are to be measured by. And if we do not measure up, we must pay the consequences. That's a part of being just. That's a part of being righteous. That's a part of being holy. And so the result is the wages of sin, the book of Romans tells us, is death. It's a law. And it cannot be changed. In fact, it would be unjust for God to change this law. It would be unjust for God to say, hey, I used to have a standard about what was right and wrong and what harmed or destroyed people and whatever, but I'm just going to go ahead and change that today. We would say, you're unjust. You are unrighteous. There is a law, the law of sin and death, that cannot be reversed. And so we face the same obstacles. The past cannot be changed, and there's a law that cannot be reversed. So how in the world does this chapter end with joy? What does it mean for us? Well, if we're going to know true joy, we need to recognize our deep need for joy and not settle for lesser things. We also need to be realistic about the obstacles to our joy, and I love that the Bible is radically honest about that. But third, it's the longest point, but it's, it's an important one, is we need to welcome the reason for our joy. See, you can't just tell someone to have joy. Have you ever tried that? It doesn't work. Someone's sad, someone's discouraged, someone's depressed, and you're like, be joyful. And they're like, oh, right, duh. Just got to flip on my joy switch. Like the whole time I was sad because I didn't choose to be joyful. I say that because a lot of Christians do that. They're like, hey, you sad? Be joyful. And you're like, oh, right. Like they're rebuking them. Hey, hey, you, discouraged person, have joy. I'm like, oh, right, sorry, dang it, yes. Okay, joy, ah. Like joy is not just something, if you say the word joy like eight times, all of a sudden you're like, have joy. Sadly, that's how many of us operate. No, the way to get joy is you have to have a reason for it. There needs to be a reason delivered to you that actually brings joy, and that is what happens in Esther chapter 8. So there's these obstacles. The past couldn't be changed, and the king could not reverse his law, but we learned in the last few verses leading up to 9 and 10, a new law could be given. A new law that would ensure life over death. And so the writing goes into effect. Verse 9 and 10. At once, the royal secretaries were summoned on the 23rd day of the third month, the month of Sivan. They wrote out all Mordecai's orders to the Jews and to the satraps, governors, and nobles of the 127 provinces stretching from India to Kush. These orders were written in the script of each province and the language of each people and also to the Jews in their own script and language. Mordecai wrote in the name of King Xerxes, sealed the dispatches with the king's signet ring, and sent them by mounted couriers who rode fast horses, especially bred for the king. So what happens in the story? The past can't be changed. The old law cannot be reversed. What's happening? A new law is written. A new law is announced. A new law is distributed and carried out throughout the empire. This new law not only enabled the Jewish people to protect themselves on the day that Haman decreed for others to destroy them, but it was also an announcement to the empire that the king was favorable towards the Jews. The fact that he was right having this new law written 
revealed that the king was favorable towards the Jews. And that he's inviting other people to also have a favorable attitude towards the Jews. And so the news goes out, verse 11 through 13. The king's edict granted the Jews in every city the right to assemble and protect themselves, to destroy, kill, and annihilate the armed men of any nationality or province who might attack them and their women and children and to plunder the property of their enemies. The day appointed for the Jews to do this in all the provinces of King Xerxes was the 13th day of the 12th month, the month of Adar. A copy of the text of the edict was to be issued as law in every province and made known to the people of every nationality so that the Jews would be ready on that day to avenge themselves on their enemies. So here's what's happening. Mordecai, who's now the new prime minister in Persia, he drafts up this new law, this new edict that gave the Jews permission to defend themselves against anyone who would kill or take their property. It allowed them to gather and to defend. More on that next week as it plays out. But the message throughout the empire was clear. If you were thinking about attacking the Jews on March 7th, think again. But it's one thing to write the law. It's another thing for people to hear the law. Hence all the detail on like the fast horses and the couriers. You're like, wow, that's a surprising amount of detail for a historical narrative. But here's why. The message had to get out. It needed to get into the hands of the people. It needed to come to the ears of the people. Most importantly, it needed to get into the hearts of the people. And so we learn about the horses again. Verse four, the couriers... What were they riding? The royal horses. What was significant about the royal horses? They were the fastest. That's fun. And they went out, note this, spurred on by the king's command. See where I'm going with this? And the edict was issued in the citadel of Susa. The past cannot be changed. There's a law that cannot be reversed. So what happens that bring jo brings joy? It's this new law that makes deliverance possible. And it is written, it's recorded, and it is sent throughout the empire. And what is the result? What is the result for people who are under the shadow of death? What is the result? Esther and Mordecai didn't go throughout the empire just saying, hey, everyone, have joy. Hey, everyone, say the word joy repeatedly until you have joy. It's not what it said. A message went out. And what was the result? Notice how often joy or celebration is recorded in the paragraph we're about to read. Verse 15 and 17. When Mordecai left the king's presence, he was wearing royal garments of blue and white, a large crown of gold and a purple robe of fine linen. And the city of Susa held a joyous celebration. For the Jews, it was a time of happiness and joy, gladness and honor. In every province and in every city to which the edict of the king came, there was joy and gladness among the Jews with feasting and celebrating. And many people of other nationalities became Jews because the fear of the Jews had seized them. You can't just tell people to have joy. You got to have a reason for joy. So why should we have joy? You might ask, what's the reason for my joy? Well, friend, it is the good news of a new law that makes joy for us possible. And it is the distribution of this new law, this news that makes joy possible for your family members, for your neighbors, for the million people of Ventura County and beyond. Because we all live under the shadow of death. We all live under the law of sin and death. We've all sinned, and the result is death, separation from God. But in order to bring us deliverance, in order to bring us joy, notice what God doesn't do in the gospel of Jesus Christ. God does not lower his standard. God does not change his law. Again, in doing so, that would make him unjust. He doesn't say, yeah, I have my Ten Commandments, but I'm just going to give you three and a half. 
I'm just going to like lower it a little bit and like, you know, maybe we'll try to work with it. It's, it's amendable. That would make him unjust. But God doesn't do that. Notice in the gospel, God does not lower his standard. God brings us deliverance by lowering himself. That is what the gospel is all about. God lowered himself by sending his son, Jesus Christ, to come into our world, to fulfill the perfect law on our behalf. What the law of sin and death required, even though he never sinned, and even though he did not deserve the penalty, we did. But he died in our place as our substitute. On the cross, the gospel says, he bore our sins, meeting the righteous demand of the law. But the good news doesn't end with an empty cross. The good news ends with an empty tomb, amen? It's not only that the cross is empty, the tomb is empty. Jesus Christ rose again, and when he did, he put a new decree into effect. A new law into effect that gives you a new heart, new power to override your old nature and your old desires, and he gives you hope for the future. And that is why in the New Testament, when the Apostle Paul is explaining and expounding on what the gospel means for you and for me, he says this in Romans 8. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. That is good news. God didn't lower his standard. God lowered himself for us. See, in saving sinners, God did not become unlawful. He didn't just say, you know, give you a little wink, like, oh, I know you sinned, but wink, it's fine. Just sweep it under the rug. You can come in through the pearly gates. Just talk to Peter. Tell him I sent you. He didn't lower his standard. He fulfilled the law on our behalf. And through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, wrote a new decree. We've all sinned. We cannot change that. Can't change what I've done in the past. We've all sinned against God. But because of this new decree, what he has done, we can have new life. We can have joy. But this news needs to get out. And you are the messengers. You are the couriers. Reality Ventura. You are commissioned as the couriers. Find your fastest steed and take out the good news of Jesus Christ for everyone to hear it. It's the reason for joy. You have within your possession the reason for the joy of your neighbor. You have within your possession the reason for the joy of your unsaved family members, your relatives, your coworkers, for the world you have given to you by the king the news they need to hear so that they can have joy and so that they can have life. I mean, just imagine, friends, if the church were like these messengers. Notice it says, you can underline it, spurred on by the king. King Jesus says, go, what are you waiting for? People need to hear the news, get out there. Go tell them. Because notice it was not until the, empire, the Jewish people in the empire heard the news that they were able to have joy that they were able to have joy. Spurred on by the king, we go to spread this good news to the nations. It's a reminder that we cannot allow the pursuit of our own personal comfort or wealth or security blind us to the needs of the lost world around us. And I love that it ends by saying, and many became Jews. There was joy where there was previously weeping. G.K. Chesterton, one of the great British writers of a previous generation, said this, joy 
is the gigantic secret of the Christian. I love that. What did he mean? He's saying this. On the surface, everyone talks about pleasure and happiness in life, and they all pursue them. But if this life is all that there is, then it is fragile, it is fleeting, and you can't take anything with you. It's like having a good time on the Titanic. It's nothing you can take beyond the grave. But for the Christian, this is what he's getting at, for the Christian, there can and will be tragedy on the surface, difficulty, hardship, persecution. But beneath the surface can lie a deep satisfaction and a security that not only will outlast the opposition, but will actually increase in the face of adversity. And so we think about our past. It might not be possible to change what had happened before. But this new law of the spirit of life, the good news of Jesus Christ, we can know that our lives are redeemed. Our guilt is removed. Our shame is released. There's famous sentences in the Old Testament where God says, I will remember your sins no more. You might be familiar with it. But it's important to understand the meaning of it. When God says to you, I will remember your sins no more, he doesn't mean that I will literally forget them. As if you were to say, God, remember what I did in 1999? He's like, what? Oh, Tim Chaddock, 98, nothing, 99, nothing, 2000, nothing. It's just not there. What are you talking about, Tim? It's not as though God is accessing his memory bank. It's like file not found, Tim's previous sins. So what does it mean when God says, I will remember your sins no more? The Hebrew word for remember means this. It's not as though he forgets our sins. He chooses not to look at us through our sins any longer. That's what he's saying. I'm aware of them. I know them better than you know them yourself. But I will look at you through them no longer. I will look at you through my son, Jesus Christ. Because you trusting in Jesus Christ is like being Mordecai in Esther chapter eight where you are robed with the king's royal robes, positioned with him. And that is how God sees you. And that is what takes the poison out of your past. John Newton once said, I am a great sinner. I know two things. I'm a great sinner, but I also have a great savior. I can be honest about my past I can be honest about my sins, but I can also be honest about my Savior and know that I am forgiven. That is precisely the power that is at work when you hear someone talking about the transformation they've experienced when they trust in Jesus, and that brings you joy. This chapter began with tears, but it ends with joy. What made the difference? It was the writing of a new law, and it was the hearing of a new law that needed to be distributed and believed. And as we're about to go into a time of worship, I just want to be very clear about this, that Jesus is the reason for your joy. You need to know that. Jesus is the reason for your joy. You might say, well, in what way? And I know that can seem abstract. Let me just give you a few as we prepare our hearts to respond this morning in worship. Three ways in which I have to be reminded of what joy looks like in the Christian life. When I think of joy, I think of this. Joy is knowing that my salvation is received, not achieved. We often say that the gospel is not good advice, it's good news. Good advice is about what you should go and do. Good news is about what's already been done. The gospel is not good advice. Hey everyone, here's 27 things that you need to do today to find peace, love, security, and hope forever. That's religion terrible. The gospel is not good advice about what you should do. The gospel is good news about what Jesus has done. And in the same way, it's true with joy. You don't get joy, true lasting joy, by following good advice. You get joy by believing good news. 
Many of us are trying to find joy by following good advice, and that might be good, and there might be some good fruits as a result of that, but that is not the true and lasting joy that you need. You get joy by believing in good news, because real joy is received, not achieved. It's not based on how well I perform. It's based on how well Jesus has performed. That's joy. Joy is knowing that my salvation is received, not achieved. Joy, secondly, is knowing that my suffering is a chapter. It's not the whole story. See, we learn in this chapter that there will be suffering. There will be adversity. Joy is not the absence of hardships. We're told by Jesus that we will have hardships in this life. But I can still have joy. Why? Because suffering, though it might be a chapter, is not the whole story. Suffering and adversity will be a chapter or multiple chapters in your life. You're like, mine's like an act. It's like act three. But it's not going to be the end. Because the third reason for your joy is that your hope is eternal, not temporal. See, we find joy because it's not rooted in our immediate outcome of getting that raised, getting the house, having the relationship reconciled and resolved. Our joy is rooted in our ultimate outcome knowing that God is working all things together for our good, just as he was for his people back then. So Jesus says to you, friend, I am going to bring you joy by bringing you to myself, forgiving you of all your sins, giving you a clean heart and a fresh start, and nothing will ever separate you from me. My wife and I often use the phrase, fighting for joy. Maybe you've used it. But what I need to remember is we don't have to fight for reasons to find joy. God's given us all the reasons we need for joy. We don't have to fight for those. They're there. Read scripture. What we need to do is to fight against the temptation to look for joy in lesser things. That's where the fight's involved. So this morning, I'm inviting you to fight for joy by resisting the temptation to find joy in lesser things and celebrating that you already have joy. The reason has never changed. Regardless of how I feel this morning, regardless of how you feel this morning, the gospel didn't change last night when we struggled. The reason for our joy has never changed. It's there for us to welcome and to receive. And right now, the Holy Spirit would invite you to welcome it, receive it, invest in your joy right now by focusing on Jesus. It may mean a change of perspective. It may involve repentance from sin that's blinding you to that. But for all of us, the Spirit invites us to look to Jesus as our source of joy. The odds may be against your joy if you're looking at it on the surface. The odds may be against your joy, but the power of God changes the odds. Amen? Let's pray together. Father, I pray that where we need a change of perspective, that your Holy Spirit would come and reveal what needs to be revealed, shine a light on things that need to be illuminated to our own hearts. Grant us the grace to confess and to repent of sins or patterns of sin that are blinding us to the joy we have in Christ or just our perspective is off. We've just so highly valued other things as being the source of joy. We confess that we need to be reminded that you are our joy, Jesus, and you have not changed. You are the same yesterday, today, and forever. And so I pray that now this time of response would be a holy moment for us where we invest in our joy by trusting in Jesus. I pray that none of us would be spectators but yielding to the work of your Holy Spirit. Pray for anyone who does not yet know you that right now they would find joy by trusting Jesus, that they would say from their heart, Jesus, save me. 
I confess I'm a sinner. I believe you died on a cross to forgive me of all my sins. You rose again on the third day to give me new life. I pray that that man or that woman right now would pray that from their heart, trust in Jesus and be saved. Holy Spirit, we invite you to move right now. We welcome you. May we not resist what it is that you want to do in us. For it is for your glory and for our joy. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Friends, I'm aware that as we gather week after week that our time of response can just feel mundane or routine or or ordinary or whatever. But I want to remind you right now, there's nothing ordinary about what the Holy Spirit wants to do in your heart. And so I'm inviting all of you to respond to what the Holy Spirit is saying. Respond to what the Spirit is doing. We have these carpets down here in the front and it's not just a matter of taste. It's, it's an opportunity for us to express biblical postures of worship. In scripture, you see men and women who've heard and received good news. They're not just like, oh, great, thanks. They're like on their knees, lifting their hands. Sometimes it's powerful just to bow down and acknowledge like, God, you are it. I just want to acknowledge you, even with with my response right now, I want to acknowledge that Jesus is my joy. So I invite you to, you can get up out of your seat, you can stand, put your hands in the air, come down to the carpets, kneel, say, Jesus, you're my joy. Communion is here on the stage, and if you've believed on Jesus, I invite you, I call you to come and to celebrate that, saying, God, you are the one who has secured through Jesus my joy forever. Eat the bread, drink the cup. Remember the victory of Jesus. Confess your sin. Confess where it is that we're looking to lesser things. Be filled with the Spirit. And there are men and women to my right and to my left. They're here against the walls. They've got the prayer lanyards on. I'm asking you to come and to pray and just say, here's where I need joy. I need joy in my marriage. I need joy with my children. I need joy in my job. I need joy in my neighborhood. I need joy in my circumstances. I need joy in the situation with my health. I sense that some of you have gotten like bad news this week. That might resonate with some of you. And it's just blinding you to the truth of the gospel. Come and pray with these men and women. Watch what the Holy Spirit will do. And let's sing. Because singing to Jesus and of Jesus with our hearts is an investment in our joy. So let's do that now. Amen? Let's let nothing hold us back. Let's respond now.